Don't miss the Can-Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, North America's premier men's volleyball event. Experience and enjoy world-class athletes, coaches, and competition in Toronto this holiday season, December 28th to 31st at the Toronto Pan-Am Sports Centre. Get your tickets while they last at www.cahvs.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Uh, long resume. I hope I don't miss anything. He's a CIS champion. He was a CIS All-Canadian. He was an MVP for the CIS. When he was at Red Deer College, he was a CCAA champion, MVP, first-team All-Star, and the CCAA Player of the Year. He also went on to represent Team Canada and play internationally, and now he's the head coach of the University of Alberta Golden Bears. Please welcome to the show, Brock Davidock. Thanks for doing this, Brock. Thanks for having me, Josh. That's a long resume to get through. That That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. So I guess my first question is, let's cover your playing career. Um, what was high school or club like for you, or how early did you start playing before you kind of knew that you wanted to play volleyball at a post-secondary level and at a pro level? Um, my grade seven, my sister had played volleyball at the junior high that I went to, um, and she took me in our backyard and we started playing pepper she started showing me a few things because she knew I wanted to try out for the volleyball team and uh, she was like you look you know you're doing pretty good to just try to avoid setting because you're not very good at setting <laughs> and then uh, I got thrown in the setting line and ended up making it as a setter which she kind of laughed at when I got home so that was the start of it and then I, I remember just driving home my dad was driving home from hockey uh, one day and I said you know I feel like I want to stop playing hockey and focus on volleyball and playing a bunch of sports at the time and I really started to just really like it I like the community of it I like the guys and I actually remember the day like that year where I was just like fell in love with it I remember everything about that practice um, and I didn't really like look back from that point on uh, I had some really good coaches when I was young um, some very like invested coaches I was also surrounded by some really good athletes like in a good volleyball development year so that really helped kind of set the my base of skills in volleyball IQ as I grew up. Um, so, and then from there, I was kind of set some goals. The first big one was to try to make the Canada Games team. And then I heard about the thing called you know, national team and pro volleyball. And uh, there was an athlete by the name of Doug Bruce that was setting for U of A at the time. And I went out to watch him play and watch U of A. And he was kind of my the guy that I wanted to be like long term hearing about all this stuff he was doing so I set my sights on that and put a lot of time towards that goal nice uh, I was actually just talking about this with somebody the other day I think the reason why maybe hockey and soccer are popular for young athletes is if you lose control of the ball the play doesn't stop right we're in volleyball if somebody messes up the ball then we have to start over basically and, and waste time in between so when you started out as a young athlete what part of volleyball got you hooked and kind of took you away from being a hockey player I think it was like early success maybe I know that maybe doesn't sound like the best reason but I just found I was good at it and I really liked that it also was very the, the position I played at that time I required a lot of organization um, as in, you know being a center that's always required but at that time in my life I, I did that a lot like when we would when I was in elementary we would go recess and play football and stuff like that I was always one organizing and doing that I think I get that from my dad um, I think I, I think that I liked about it, made, um, the leadership part of it. Like I was in control as a setter, and I can organize things. Um, I think that gave me an early taste for why I liked it. 
and then from there, I, other than that, I really don't know why at the start, but as I went on, I do know playing as many sports as I did, I really liked the people in the community in volleyball, uh, and that's still one of the things I really liked about it. Nice, and actually, yeah, you're not the only person to have a similar answer. Uh, super best friend of the show and U of A alumni, Ben Saxon, mentioned that he probably liked basketball better, but was just better at volleyball, and he really liked being good at things. So that's what kind of swayed him and his decision. So after you played, uh, obviously, at a good level in high school and club, what made you choose uh, Red Deer as your post-secondary option? Obviously, they've been competitive as long as anybody can remember. Um, so what was your recruiting process, and what made you decide to go there? Um, at the time... Terry Daniluk uh, was talking to me a lot uh, about U of A, um, and he was around. I, I was like in love with U of A from watching the Can-Am Challenge uh, and watching all these great Canadian players play and all these great American players play. Um, so I just really wanted to be part of that program, but my timing wasn't good. Uh, there were these two guys in it. Just the time that I would have been a third setter had I gone there. So I was looking, uh, I was getting recruit, recruited by UFC and heavily recruited by Dalhousie. Uh, and I heard of Red Deer College and uh, a couple guys were starting to get plucked to go there. Um, Nicholas Cundy was one, if you know who that is. And um, there was a guy by the name of Mike Pfeiffer who was at the time one of the best players in the country, but he didn't continue playing volleyball later. They both got picked up by Red Deer pretty early. So I started to think about that, and Terry just said, you know, your timing's not great, why don't you, it would really work if you went to college, played there for two years, they have a really good coach there, you can develop you as a setter and a competitor, and you can come play with us with a good time in your third year. Um, and I, I like that. Uh, Dan Oda at Dow did a great job of flying me out to, to Halifax and put forth a great recruiting trip, and I left I remember flying home, and I was 95% sure I was going to go to Dalhousie. Um, but then something just changed. I remember uh, playing in, in the Red Deer gym in a tournament when I was in grade, uh, I can't remember, 11 or 12. And I just really got this good vibe about it and this good gut feeling. And it was funny. I was My dad was really helpful in, in that whole process, and he was pressuring me to tell the UFC coach, who was Greg Ryan at the time, to make sure I told him properly that I wasn't going to UFC. And he was really pressuring me, and we were getting heated about it. And in that heated moment, I said, well, Dad, when I tell Dalhousie I'm not going there, this is how I'm going to do it. And that was the first time I even made that decision. So it came about in like a very guttural type of reaction in a conversation with my dad that I would be going to Red Deer and UFA. Um, and now being on the side of recruiting, you know, as a recruiter, it's one of the things I talk to athletes about is that once you gather all that information, it's really up to your gut to make that decision. I think that's how we make decisions best is gathering information and then, you know, leading from our gut. Uh, so that was, yeah, that was how that process went. Uh, Keith Hansen didn't, it wasn't like recruiting me hard, but back then I think the recruiting game was a little different. He'd be sending me emails from when he was coaching in Germany at the time and, uh, I heard about him and the program. I was just really intrigued of that college transfer option. And then, uh, yeah, made that decision and joined those guys there. And we had a pretty successful run. Yeah, it feels like that's more common uh, in Canada West where Red Deer and Mount Royal, when they were still uh, playing in the CCAA, it, it was a little bit more common that people would play there, do well, and then go to university. Um, now that you're on the coaching side with your recruiting, is there still a lot of athletes transferring from the CCAA into youth sports? Or is that kind of slowed down a little bit? Uh, it's slowed down quite a bit. There's been a lot of things that have contributed to that. 
you know, there's strong college programs like Mount Royal or McEwen are now universities. Um, so the, uh, all the new university teams have kind of changed that. The foreigner rule changing in the college to allow to have three foreigners. Um, I think that's changed the landscape there. Um, I don't think the, like the blue chip recruits go college first anymore, where they did back in the day. There were a ton that would go that route. Um, you even look like Gavin Schmidt. You went, well, Gavin Schmidt went U of S first, but then he went to college, and then actually maybe that's not a good example because he went right to the national team from there. Right. Um, right. But uh, in any event, you know, there it's not the same case where like the top recruits in the country are going college. Although I think there should be more solid recruits playing college. I think too many go university and get buried in the roster. Um, now the exception to that is if. A, uh, an athlete coming out of high school should be going to university because of academics. Um, but if it's a pure volleyball decision, I think there's some athletes that should go college first uh, instead of you know being a deep man on a roster. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A couple guys like that that we even talked to them about it, um, where we said we think you should go college first and then come to us. But they're like, yeah, like I get that volleyball wise, but academically it doesn't work for me. Like I'm really, I want to be at U of A for academics. I'm like, okay, well that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So you as a player, what do you remember from that time? Was there a big jump from being a high school level setter to college? And then was there another jump when you joined the CIS or was everything pretty consistent because you were developing at the same rate as, as the level around you? I remember the jumps being definitely distinct, but I remember being ready for them. I had really good coaching. Sean Sky from Mount Royal was my coach. Uh, from like when I was grade nine or grade twelve, uh, so I thought I was ready for that jump. Uh, but things, you know, you're playing against the, the setting for me was I think the the progression was normal. You know, for me it was more like blocking, serving, defending, everything as you went up in level was faster that I had to get used to. But from the setting end, um, I was uh, lucky enough to play with some really good volleyball players in club in high school like our high school team had three youth national teams and seven provincial team players on it so we were playing at a pretty high level at that age then when we jumped to college we ended up having a bunch of national team guys on our college team like myself nicholas cundy dallas Junius, aaron shula who then went on to play pro um and we uh we all like went on to university together so we that level on our side of the net like that progression felt pretty uh normal to me but there's definitely like physicality changes from high school to college to, to university were pretty noticeable. Once I left Canada, that was the biggest change. Like playing national team, playing overseas, like it's a whole, whole another level up. That's a big jump. Nice. And um, just to finish up your playing career at U of A, what do you remember about the, the championship season? So uh, was that the year you guys beat Trinity Western in the final at uh, CIS? It was still CIS at that time, right? Yeah, it was CIS. But what I remember about that was we had a burr in our saddle the whole year because we lost in the final in five to U of S the year before. We were a bunch of young guys uh, starting in my first year at U of A, and U of S was so good. They were really strong, and we happened to really take them all the way. We lost... 15-13 in the fifth, and that really, I think, was the reason why we had a good championship run the next year, because uh, that just really motivated us to go all the way, uh, 
and Trinity was really good that year. They had Josh House in setting, which is still playing. Um, they had a really, really strong middle, and they had a bunch of just good, good athletes. They, they went on to win, beat us in the final the next year. Um, but that championship year, I think it was that that competitive competitiveness that I remember the most um, that just glued us together on that run. Now, being an alumni of the Canada West and now a coach inside it, what what's going on in Canada West where it seems like it, it's not unusual for a team to win Canada West, but then not win nationals, right? Like Brandon technically won, but then Trinity won nationals or the year before UBC won nationals, but I think finished third in Can West. Like, uh, and you guys have mentioned that you've suffered that where you've won Canada West, but then another Canada West team will win a nationals or vice versa. Um, what's going on with the competition schedule or just the level of talent? What's happening out there that uh, you can win your conference, but that doesn't mean much going into like a three-day tournament like nationals. Yeah, I think it's just speaks to the fact that it's like we're, we have a really competitive conference and once you get to that very upper echelon when you're in the, the conference final four and then nationals the next week, um, those teams are so close that, you know, it's really anyone's, if they're in that ballpark, it's anyone's match on that day. Um, and then there's just a whole bunch of things that can happen, you know. Um, when they get in that three-day tournament, like, you got to be in, physically good shape you have to be like your immune system's got to be checked in check like at nationals the last couple of years there's been pretty key players uh that have fallen ill and that's happened the last like three or four years so anything can happen but uh i think it just speaks to how close those top teams are in our conference and you know depending on the year there's a lot of parity from the top team down to like the, the 10th team um so that would be the main thing i think it's nothing with the scheduling or anything like that. I think teams get used to adapting, and there's some pretty good coaches that understand how to plan around the uh, adapting schedules. Right, right. Or the changing schedules, I should, I should say. Um, so what we're learning on this show is there's there's still a little bit of unknown for volleyball players out there in terms of how do you hire an agent, how do you manage getting contract offers from different leagues. Um, at what point during your CIS career did you actually get in touch with an agent and start looking at options to play overseas? My path was a little different, um, so yeah, that's that's a good question. It's really dynamic; it changes a lot depending on who's happy with their agents. Really, yeah, goes back and forth. But anyways, I uh, the year after I graduated was um, the year they started the full time training center. So um, what's now called the NEP that uh, volleyball Canada has been running out of gap. Well, that started in in two thousand six in Winnipeg. Uh, coached by a man by the name of Chris Green, and there was myself and six other national team guys. Uh, one one was back from injury. All the other guys were uh, graduating from university, and it was a stepping stone to uh, professional. And at that time, it was very clear cut which agency you go with. There were two agencies at the time. Uh, one had all the national team athletes. The other one had guys that were kind of under it under the national team, like Richard, sorry, not under, like just out of reach of the national team. Um, so it was very, it was very easy choice for us to choose. But plus, that was when Glenn was really, Glenn Hope was really trying to help athletes get out and get good pro contracts. Because at the time, I feel like Canadians didn't have the reputation they did now. Yet our national team was still really strong. Like I, I feel once the national team qualified for 
the Olympics. I mean, our A guys, we're talking guys who have been getting good contracts for a while, but guys that are further down on that national team roster, like that 19th and 20th guy, back in 06, they weren't getting the same contracts as, say, like, U.S.'s 20th guy. Um, but now, I think, with our national team doing a lot better on the world stage and all of Glenn Hope's work, those 19th and 20th guys are getting a lot better contracts. Um, and I think that's all started from, yeah, Glenn's work. Like, I don't my like best contract was actually arranged by Glenn. Uh, he was he knew uh, the manager in, in tour in France, and said he wanted you know he think I'd be a good fit there for the role that they needed. Then my agent stepped in and did all the logistics and stuff like that. Um, so that was my pathway. Now it's a lot different. There's a lot more agents available out there um, for a variety of different players. Uh, the NEPs kind of restructured. It's not really the stepping stone as much anymore. There's a lot of like guys coming out of high school, which really didn't happen a lot back when it was the FTC when it first fired up, or I should say reinvigorated, because in the 90s there was the FTC as well. Um, there's there's a lot of options with the proliferation of just what's going on online, with social media, and just the amount agencies can advertise online. I think there's a lot more options, which is good, because then you have uh, kind of a... The, the free market range there where guys can kind of pick and choose what uh, what they want. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question there. Is that close to what you're looking for? Oh, d definitely. Yeah, and then just my follow-up. Uh, Volleyball Canada released an article that said uh, there's about 76 males who got a pro contract and are overseas this year. When you graduated, was it fair to say that you had to go to FTC? Uh, were many people leaving CIS and getting a contract right off the bat? Um, our kind of what Glenn, Glenn's philosophy was, um, and I think it makes sense, that he thought we needed to get stronger physically and get like a, just get a lot of skill work done. Um, there were some guys that went straight over, like uh, I think Dallas Sunius may have only done one semester and then he went over and got a good contract. Myself, I had a contract offer between my fourth and my fifth year in Poland, but I don't know, I, I don't remember that if that team was all that good. Like I think I would. I think the team I went to ended up being a better team. So I, I remember like Glenn's approach to it and uh, wanting to get our skills tuned and our physical work done. Uh, and when I went over my first year, like the training to me was a breeze. Like after going through the FTC, I felt very very strong. Um, where it's all at now, I feel that like I, I don't think we also. I also don't think we had the offers then. Uh, like the offers that are coming up now. Like I think there's a lot of guys that are getting pulled into better contracts now. Like, we've had guys like a Brent Walsh or a Riley Barnes who go straight in the Champions League teams, and that wasn't happening um, as much back then. Um, now, there's some debate over, like, okay, uh, should these athletes be going right away? Do they need that same work? You know, that physical work so they can last all year wrong, all year, all year round. And I don't know that I'm the expert on that to kind of give an evaluation there, but I do see that I feel like there's more of an understanding that, hey, like Canada actually has these really good international players that might not be in that top, like, that top six or top ten. But we go down the list, there's still some really good guys that we can put in the other leagues. And I think, I think for a long time, Canada's top guys have been getting good contracts. But I think the difference now is that the – the extended roster guys are getting good contracts now too, which is really good and helps my perceptions that it helps develop our, our national team. Cause now, you know, I assume that, you know, Glenn's done a good job is that he has 
this depth of players. I shouldn't say just Glenn, like Antigua, my perception, and I don't have the inside scoop here, but my perception is that both those guys were doing those similar things. So I would loop Antigua in with, with this stuff as well, though I wouldn't be the guy to really confirm all that from the inside. Um, but I just think, to me, it looks like our guys that are like, you know, fourth or fifth in a, in a position are getting pretty good contracts, and that, that's great for our national team. That's just for our athletes to provide as a Definitely. And I think with the level of coaching in youth sports um, and with how inclusive Glenn is with the planning and kind of shares it with anybody who's, who's willing to ask, uh, is it fair to say that maybe youth sports has kind of closed the gap too? Or are players today leaving their universities with more of a, or excuse me, less of a gap in physicality than maybe uh, like our generation did when you graduated? Well, I think that um, sports science is just surging forward into everyone's program. And uh, there's a lot of programs that are now investing money and time into it so as a result yeah there's a lot more physical athletes coming out whether it's they're more physical or they're more durable yeah i would say that's that's definitely the case now that doesn't mean that athletes weren't doing it back when i played like i can only really speak from my end but we had some pretty motivated players that were uh doing those things like similar to similar to guys now like getting their stuff taking care of their bodies like trying to understand what the physical part of the game is like and how and where it belongs and everything. But I feel like now it's way more commonplace. Like it's being implemented at lower levels in PSOs uh, amongst all like the developmental teams and systems. So uh, I, I think that that's creating, yeah, on, on the whole, more physical players coming out for more physical slash more durable. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So switching gears into your, your coaching path, uh, at what point did you know you want to get involved? And then just to touch on your point there of like working with PSOs, just it looks like you're pretty busy. Like obviously being a university coach, that takes up a lot of your time. But I think fans of the show will recognize that you're involved with uh, Alberta Volleyball, whether it's the provincial team program at like um, National Team Challenge Cup, or excuse me, Canada Cup, I think it's called now, Canada Games. Like seems like you're, you're all over the place. So what kind of sparked this coaching bug for you? And how do you find the time to be involved in all the programs you are? So in 2012, things were winding down for me with the national team. Glenn kind of was like, yeah, I think you know, it's about time that you hang it up. And <laughs> he didn't give me the hard cut. He just kind of was like, hey, what do you think about about moving on? I was like, yeah, I get that. And uh, when that was good timing because I also I was not really enjoying playing professionally anymore. And if the window was closing for me with the national team, I was like, well, maybe it's time to hang it up. And then my mom, uh, the guy had back injury, and my mom, who's healthy now, my mom had breast cancer, and so I came home uh, to be with her and uh, wanted to take a break from volleyball. Um, so I just kind of did some non-volleyball stuff, cruised around for a bit, and was rehabbing. I, I thought I would go back, try it for a bit, and then kind of see where I was at. Um, so I ended up in 2013, I think it was. I can't really remember my years. Uh, I went back with the full-time training center for a bit, and then... Um, decided to just fully hang it up uh and in that year there uh i had asked terry if i could come out and just be with the team and help coach the team um every once in a while and i re- and i but i told him because terry like he wanted me to come out a lot i told him i only want to come out once a week because i'm taking a break from this uh and he was respectful of that and then i was out one night watching the guys just in a stand stands and just started talking to Terry after the match about what I was saw with the setters, and he asked me to come in the 
in a team room and just listen to what he has to say and give my feedback. And so I did that. And I, I remember this very distinctly as well as driving home. I remember the red light that I was at. And I remember thinking to myself, I really want to be there. Like, I don't, I, I didn't want to leave that team. It wasn't my team. I was, my, you know, I was an alumni, but I remember thinking that at that stoplight that why am I, what am I doing right now? And that was kind of the, um, the deciding factor for me um, around that time as well. Terry approached me and said, you know, I, I think you should think about coaching and we can talk about, you know, if, if you're ready in a number of years um, taking over as head coach, but you need to be ready and you need to do a bunch of things because it's a big investment. And so I then thought about that. My wife and I, well, who's my girlfriend at the time, she's my now wife. Uh, we went traveling and I kind of decided that I would go back Kind of after that travel period, I decided I would go back. One of the things that Terry said, I should do my master's and then start coaching as much as possible. So I started coaching provincial teams and got on with the junior national team and other developmental teams and started running our uh, uh, Volleyball Canada Centre of Excellence. Um, I just tried to coach a lot. I've been coaching private sessions and one-on-one since like 2006 with a volleyball company that I created, which is now got transitioned to a U of A program. Um, so I, the reason I got in is because I needed to get caught up from the coaching and the things I've been playing at a high level, but I needed to learn how to coach because there, there's a separation there for sure. Um, so I started doing that, and yeah, I got involved in anything I could, anything I got invited to. If it worked in my schedule, I would do it. So I was coaching with the junior national team last year, sure if I could uh, stay home and coach the provincial team, if they were really understanding, so I like, would come back for a gap period there to do a team Alberta, go back to the junior national team. Uh, so it was like a, it was a lot of work. And Lori Eisler, our women's coach, one time she said, "Yeah, you're going through your like apprenticeship hours where you just got to keep logging and logging and learning and learning." And it was uh, so that's kind of that was my approach to doing it. Um, and I thought that it was really helpful. And I've been surrounded by some incredible minds, which have been really helpful for me in in my coaching practice. And, uh, whether it's people with Team Alberta or Volleyball Canada or just the coaches that, and obviously the coaches at U of A, like Terry and Lori and all the other coaches, Dale Johns, but other coaches outside of volleyball. We have some really incredible coaches that share this hallway. And, um, so it's been a great learning experience since that, since I hung it up, since that, that time, um, hung, hung it up playing. Uh, and uh, I feel like the more I coach, the more I realize that uh, I need to know more, I need to learn more. And, um, I like that side of, of this journey is that I think you constantly want to be learning. Yeah. So when you say learn to coach, can you give uh, myself and the listeners just an example? Because I think in all sports, former players obviously transfer into coaches, but sometimes the, the best players don't, don't really cross that bridge very well. Right. So what were some moments that stand out in your mind that you were kind of either gained a lot of respect for the coaches you had in the past or just learned something brand new that you didn't expect? I think like some of the things I noticed, like for me, the player coach transfer was most evident when I try when uh, I coached Brett Walsh here in his second year through his fifth, and I remember telling him, "I was like, why don't you ever dump the ball? Like you're this big setter, and you do all these great things, but you don't dump." And then I tossed a few balls, and he dumped. I was like, "Whoa, you don't even know how to dump." And so I was like, "I need to teach." Brett had a dump and then for me that was a huge party part of my game was I was a dumping setter it came very natural to me I did it since I was young and I had no clue how to coach 
um, I just knew how to do it. So then I had to like think about it a lot and like understand how to go about approaching that. And, um, it was the same with passing for me. Like I played and been around volleyball and read passers my whole life, but I didn't know anything about passing when I first started out. So I had to learn about passing. And like me playing at the level I played at doesn't mean I know anything about passing um, unless I reflect on it properly. Um, so kind of understanding, I think, that there's, there were some things that, one, I never did as a player, like passing. Uh, so I needed to learn that. Uh, two, there's some things that I did a ton as a player, like dumping, but I needed to learn how to articulate that to someone. Um, so just because you know or know a skill or have played at a level doesn't mean you're going to be able to communicate how to do that. Um, now, if you have played at that level and you figure out that communication piece, I think that's very powerful because not a lot of people have played at certain levels and you know like Gary he's one of our few Olympians in the country and he's one of those few guys that I think is a phenomenal player but he's also a phenomenal communicator so to kind of build on what you were asking me I think one of the revelations or things that really blew my mind is Terry's ability to just communicate complex concepts very simply and I found I remember talking with Mark Dodds the U of S women's coach we were talking about this at the time and said man we just talk so much when we coach and talk and talk and talk because we're trying to get this information to the athlete and then a guy like Terry says the same thing in one sentence and you're like man how do I get to that level of communication <laughs> really that's that's what coaching needs to be like can you make your point in as few words as possible and that's like a constant thing for me that I'm trying to do is be a better communicator not just spewing information out of the athlete um so I would say, like, so I kind of said three things there. The, the skills that you don't know, learning them and how to communicate them. The skills that you do know, but maybe you haven't had to articulate why you know them. And then that overall communication piece that um, I think the really good coaches are make really simple. The last one's a little more boring. It's not much, like, in terms of volleyball, but the, there's such a vast administrative and organizational piece off the court that you have to take care of really with most any program that you coach at the youth level or at the university level. I found that, you know, when you're coaching with Bobo Canada or Team Alberta, you're kind of spoiled that they take care of all this stuff and you can really just focus on coaching. But at a university level, like any university coach has to do like a plethora of things that actually aren't involved in like the actual on-court coaching. Um, and again, like when I was kind of apprenticing, I guess, under Terry and just seeing how, and now, now doing those things myself, I've gained such a great respect for how he, his, his massive organizational capacity. Um, and we all miss stuff. You know, I'm more of a spreadsheet guy where Terry's like pen and paper and in that big brain of his. But uh, I think that's something that uh, maybe, I think all of us that coach know that's there, but some people that maybe see universities coach, university coaches coach don't know, like there's a ton that they have to do that isn't really on-court coaching at all. Nice, yeah. Thanks for the in-depth answer. I really, really appreciate that because I think a lot of a lot of athletes want to get involved in coaching, but sometimes don't know how or they don't know the challenge they're going to face. So it's kind of neat to hear your journey and hear how you've, you've kind of transferred into a high level. Yeah. Um, so you've kind of earned the reputation of being a bit of a, a setting guru, which makes sense from your playing career and also your coaching career. I was hoping you would kind of let us in behind the scenes. So when you get, let's, let's just start at the youth level. When you get a youth athlete, whether it be at a, a clinic or, or through your own programming at, at the university, what, what are some foundational items that you really look for in a setter? Yeah, I guess my, 
my answer doesn't really answer your question because I'm very diagnostic with setters. Like I see, and that comes from my playing career. Uh, I had a coach who made me set one way, and this was on a pro team, and I was, I had to set how he told me to set, and I was really motivated to set at that level. So I really, really tried hard to uh, play for him, but that totally like ruined my feel for the game, and at that time and really affects my confidence I remember coming back like I, I became very technically strong but my feel for the game was was diminishing and I remember coming back for to play with Team Canada and this was more when I was in the thick of playing Team Canada and I felt so free like with with Glenn's approach to it I felt so free um, and uh, because of such a contrast in coaching styles and now I kind of uh, I get why that coach overseas was doing that I don't I'm not upset with that it was just that was his style. Um, and now as a coach, I, I want to make sure that I'm analyzing that setter as a setter, uh, as a person, um, as, you know, you know, their student athlete side, like what they're like. So then I can try to coach them to that. Uh, so, cause I don't want them to, I, I don't think that the one size fits all works for, um, setters are really a lot of positions. Um, so that number one is like foundation of what I try to do. Um, that being said, there's definitely principles um, that I try to um, instill in any setter I'm working with. I I work with a lot of young guys in my setting academy here. We run that, doing it for the a couple of years now, and uh, I think the guys have been getting some good value out of it. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'll hone in on, like you know, just work all the way from from the feet to the hands. Um, we're working on everything, but I'm a really big, uh, really big believer in proper footwork. Um, or what I think, sorry, in, what I, in my trying to make sure they have diligent footwork. I think there's a lot of different types of footwork, but making sure they have diligent footwork and that it's related to a read. So that they're, they're combining technical footwork with a proper a proper read. So trying to train them off of live pass as much as possible. I don't think that's always possible. I think sometimes you have to have tossing, but trying to train them from a pass from five, six, and one um, as much as possible, I, that's uh, foundational to what I try to do. Um, I know there's a lot of variety of uh, footwork entry with uh, setting. For me, I really like to have setters one starting from the pocket like when they're at, at the pocket their start position is really really important I think it sets up everything for their entry into the ball so things that I uh, am really big on um, are being their start position being off the net so if I'm training like an, a, a setter that has any type of trajectory towards being maybe an elite club player or a decent club player I usually think they have um, the strength to start off the net so they can get towards uh, passes that aren't great. Just, you know, passing isn't always on the net. So that's a really big one that I start with, start there. The other one uh, is really comes from Rod Walsh and Brent Walsh. is just starting. And, well, this is from Terry Danluck as well. But having a good uh, hand position, how you present your hands, how you're holding your hands, uh, I stole a term from Dan Lewis that I really like, just called state of readiness. I use that a lot with our guys. The hands need to be ready. Um, then, then from there, I like a, 
small, big, small. So if uh, once that pass is being made, I want to see them take a small step with their left and then get to the ball athletically and then end getting to the ball with small steps and with a right-left. Like the right-left, I know some people like uh, left-right. I like right-left because I think it's similar to how, you know, grab a basketball pass and shoot. I think that's similar which a lot of volleyball players do. Um, most most athletes that, that set, that play volleyball, are right-handed. So that, that finish into the into the entry is similar to an attack approach, which I think creates consistency and a natural feel that they're already used to. Uh, so those those ones I really hone in on. Like that's that's what I train a lot with younger athletes. We train it with our uh, Bears athletes. Um, that one I think is very very. Uh, that's a big principle that I try to instill. That being said, uh, if that doesn't work for the athletes, one of my favorite. Uh, setting coaching quotes comes from Dave Preston. So if you're setting, if you're coaching footwork for the sake of footwork, then you're overcoaching. Because all the footwork that we do or stuff we're focusing on is to help them set the ball with three hands. Um, so we had an athlete who could, he just couldn't do a right-left entry. Um, and he had been doing left to right since he grew up. And I tried to change that uh, for about four months because the, the correlation to his left-right finish was that he would set the ball off the net. That he wouldn't be able to get squared to position four properly. Um, but he just wasn't able to get the, the right-left footwork, so I scrapped that and just focused more on that type of shoulder finish with his bodies in order to do that because the, the left-right finish was more natural for him. So that's like, again, going back to what I would say is foundational is the, my, the, my, I, I try to be diagnostic with each setter to know what's you know their background, uh, what their technical upbringing is, what's natural for them, um, and then I and then from there try to help them with their technique. Um, so Josh, it's probably like about another thirty minutes I could talk about that kind of stuff because I <laughs> started with footwork. I don't know how long how, how in depth you want me to go there. Uh, I think that's lots to start. I mean, you're you're more than welcome yeah. to come back, but uh, I do want to touch on one thing where. Um, I mentioned uh, we were trying to get you on the show, and Chris Tao, who went to U of A when you were there, mentioned uh, you do a lot of reading stuff with the setters. So first of all, I guess when the when you see the setter turn and look through the net like their head actually looks at the opposing middle, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a lean? Are you looking for if they're bunching, if they're reading? Like when the setter looks through the net, or what other tactics are you trying to kind of instill in them to make decisions? I think that in, in our level, so when – at our level, I think you're trying to catch a front from a from a middle, or you're trying to catch a loosen from a right side. Um, so you're trying to pick up a cue. If I'm running my middle far away, is the opposing middle fronting that? If they are, then I do something. So that can be that I separate back to the right side. Um, I run overload. I set pipe. You have to make a decision that's according to the game plan. Um, we're doing any kind of vision training. Uh, I think that you need to, again, know your athlete. Is vision something that's in their wheelhouse? Because there are some setters that uh, that's just not really their jam. And there's there's absolutely some very high-level setters that don't look much. Uh, I, did a, my, when I did my master's, my uh, capping exercise was about setting. So I did uh, like about a 100-page paper after I interviewed these seven setting experts from around the world. And Michael Christensen from uh, the U.S. team was one of them. And he felt that in the NCAA, he could look quite a bit. 
but as he got to playing internationally, it was just less about that. He found that it's like wasn't as much of the um, wasn't involved as much just because you didn't have that opportunity as much. Uh, so at, at our level, I feel that if you're if it's in your wheelhouse, you have the opportunity, and there's things to to train with it. But there's some athletes like a Brett Walsh did. We did a lot of that with because his footwork was really really good. And he was able to slow the game down for himself really well. Um, because his footwork was good and because he was able to slow the game down, he could add in that look. So the first thing we have to figure out is like, okay, what is your what is your type of look? Like I, I think there's three kind of three ways to look at a blocker. That's either with a full head turn, which is the most obvious that you can see center do, or there's a pure peripheral. So it's not that their head is turning or that their eyes are moving. They're just purely seeing another peripheral. Um, or there's kind of a combination of just their eyes moving, or one that I find very common is that a setter will kind of set their gaze forward, and it's like they're they're moving their eyes closer to the middle blocker, and then their peripherals engaging from there. Um, so you have to figure out what technique works best for your athlete. For Brett, it was a full head turn. Um, there's other athletes like when I said it was that kind of set my gaze and pick up my peripheral. You got to figure that out, and then. What I think totally unravels any center that's trying to do that is if you tell them to just try to see something and make a decision. you got to give them very clear guidelines as to what you're looking for. So um, what I find you want to start them with is start them with passes that are coming from uh, the four or five zones. So like that, le- that, that left side closer to the net. If passes are coming from there, then it's really easy for them to track the ball and the middle blocker. And then you say, okay, when the pass is coming from here on a free ball and you're running a 31, take a look and try to see that middle blocker. And that's just the very first thing. Can they see it? And then from there, then you need to involve a decision-making process because just seeing it doesn't mean that they're going to make a good set of it. So the thing that you're talking with Chris Howe and our color calling and stuff, I find that um, in serve receive, you got setters. If you're training serve receive like a classic kind of, there's guys on either side, setters at the net, setting balls that are served to the receivers. That's a time where you can be training extra stuff. and um, You know, you're tossing these balls, you might have an easy serve coming in. That's a good time for you to place kind of an objective on that setter, and we would have them practice this skill by like, okay, you look across the net, and I'm going to say someone's name. So if it's Chris, I'm going to say, hey, Chris is shirt. And if it's a black shirt, you're setting forward. If it's not a black shirt, you're setting back. So I think it's really important that you add the decision-making process when you're training that technique, not just seeing the block. Because seeing the block isn't good enough. You have to do something with it. So any any time we train that um, beyond the rudimentary level of just picking up a cue with your eyes, got to add that if-then component, or else I don't think it really does anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the last setting question I want to ask you just to pick your brain. Um, when we had TJ Sanders on the show, he mentioned uh, he kind of prides himself on not having tendencies because when teams are scouting him, they he basically said they need to know themselves because he's going to find the weakest blocker or the best situation or he's going to be scripting a situation he wants to set up for later in the set. Uh, I'm wondering with your setters or even with the game plans you're working with, um, how much is... Are, are you looking through the net and attacking a certain blocker or a certain zone versus how much are you just playing to your strengths? I think it it's, uh, depends on the capacity of your setting. You know, a guy like TJ's very, very 
good international setter, so he's going to be able to do a lot. Um, for us, what I uh, another quote that I really like is from an ex um, Team Canada setter, Dustin Schneider. He said, "No matter how good of a decision you make, if the set's not good, you might beat the block, but they're going to take you on defense." So I think young setters, the the it's kind of ironic because I think really good young setters try to do a ton of tricky stuff. They're trying to trick the block, trick the block, trick the block, um, and to the point where they're maybe not even thinking about the block. They're just trying to make a difficult set. Uh, I was talking to Kent Greaves last weekend about this. Um, you know, you young setters will usually try to do these things, and they kind of need to be, kind of need to pull the reins on them because um, they need to realize that you need to have your side in rhythm. And I think the best setters. Um, do a really good job of making sure their hitters are always hitting the ball really hard. Uh, now, the irony that I'm talking about is that eventually they need to be making these good decisions with that. And I think the really good young, the really good setters are always kind of experimenting and wanting to do those things young until they get honed and understand their decision making process. Like Brent Walsh was like that when he came to us. He was making all these flashy sets all over the place. Uh, only to set his weakest attacker into the strongest blocker on the other side. So you'd be like, yeah, Brett, we know you're able to make that set, but are you able to make that decision? Um, and that took a, took a while to, to get him really understand, understanding that and implementing it, but when he did, he really went to work and uh, did an incredible job with it. Um, we have our, our young setter now, Cam Curran. He's got that mind where he really wants to do this to the block, that to the block, but our big thing with him is just, hey, you just got to control your side and have your guys swing well. Um, and it's just those basics. Like, you have to have your attackers and your side taken care of because if you don't, they're going to take you on defense. You might beat the block, but if, if your hitters aren't hitting hard or have all their angles or a strong angle, um, then you're not really helping them score with velocity, which you need to have them do. Nice. So That's amazing. Thank you. Side first is the big thing. If you have anything that you would maybe give advice to a high school or club level coach that maybe never sat, doesn't really understand volleyball at a tactical level, if you have anything that stands out as things you look for, I think the answer you gave about let them be their own personality and the, and kind of being open to different styles of footwork, like they don't have to be robotic. But if there's if there's any other things you want to discuss, well, I think like if I. If I were to really just encapsulate a few general principles that I try to uh, present to any setter I'm working with is um, strong fo strong footwork from a read with a right left finish, um, but also experimenting with someone for takeoffs. I think that's pretty important. Uh, I think that squaring is crucial, um, or at least the body awareness of of squaring. A lot of athletes feel like they're squaring when they're actually not squaring. Um, so being really diligent on square work, I think is important. One of the things I like to do is that on long distance balls, I like to train setters to square to two, uh, and then be able to set off their shoulder to four. Um, and if not to do that systematically, to just do it to experiment with body awareness. I think square, yes, really important, but the body awareness piece of it is paramount. The athlete has to understand what their body's doing in space in order to help them. Um, Lastly, I think there's a lot of, uh, well, not lastly, just a couple of things, but I think there's a lot of uh, different ways you can contact the ball. I think that you need to be in a very strong and athletic position. 
um, and that you need to be above your head. I'm not really picky on athletes having to have a very high contact point because I think when athletes have a very high contact point, they sacrifice strength and then their body has to make up for that sacrifice strength. And with leaning this way or jerking that way or finishing over top of the ball. So I like to have, I like to talk to athletes about a first story, second story, third story. Um, and to be in a comfortable position, probably in either first story or second story, depending on where they feel strongest. Um, and then uh, one of the last things I'll talk to you athletes about in terms of just working the way through the body is actually uh, what I really liked from TJ Sanders explained to me um, his kind of philosophy is that every setters have a one, which is the intake, and a two, which is the release. And every setter has a very unique one. The way they bring that ball in is very unique to them, and it's and that's fine. But the two has to be quick, and it has to finish strong. And I think that's really important, the finishing strong um, is really critical to the hands. And one of the things that I found as a player, they need to finish up. So finishing up is something like finish up is something that myself and our coaches say in our gym almost every day, finish up, finish up. Even on fast sets, you need to finish up. So those things are kind of what I, I talk to all of our all of our uh, any setter I coach, I usually use those and then from there it's that diagnostic approach that I that I explained to you. That's that's great. I think there's a ton of value in that. So thank you for that. Yeah, um, so just to, to shift gears again, I could listen to you talk about setting all day, but uh, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, yeah, no worries. You mentioned growing up, you got to see uh, U of A play in a Can Am. So now that you're bringing your squad to Toronto to play in the Can Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, um, what are you looking forward to from this experience? Like um, the U.S. is technically in preseason, but their their teams are still very good. Like, are you looking forward to the competition? Are you looking forward to swapping some lineups? Like, what are you guys? Uh, Looking forward to most getting out of this event. Well, one, like I, yeah, I think, anytime we're on the road, it's a good team building opportunity. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, but also, it's like you, I find that when we play the states, you know, you're seeing maybe a little bit of different ball here, a different style of setting or attacking there. Um, whenever we play those teams, we're trying to really learn from them and even steal ideas from them. Uh, this trip with we're not going to really get the chance to train with him, but when we've done our trips with the States in the past, we always train. It's really uh, collaborative, I guess. We get to learn a lot from them, and um, that's that's usually one of the best things. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that, to like kind of our guys seeing different styles of volleyball so they can learn. Uh, the other thing is just it's really good. The NCAA teams are always just really strong, and that's going to give us a good uh, turnaround. Christmas turnaround is really important. You got to have the rest. You got to manage um, that downtime, that mental break that's needed. But then you got to be ready for that second term. And we play one of the best teams in the country right off the bat with Brandon. Um, so we have to be ready for that. So playing some really good teams from NCAA, that's going to be really good for us uh, to have that that strong competition to help us prep for for that uh, for that big weekend against Brandon. Kind of heading into overtime here. Did you think of a story from the road or any any funny thing that we can end off on? And um, so yeah, we were. Uh, so you know how Team Canada went to Iran just uh, last last year with VNL, right? Yep. So the last time Team Canada was in Iran uh, before that uh, was 2003, and that was the junior national team that I was on. We were there for World Championships, and 
for whatever reason, after we ended, we had a few days to kill there. And we just didn't have a lot to do. So being 19-year-olds, we were fooling around and came up with a plan to uh, use up all our athletic tape. Uh, we had a full, like, two boxes of athletic tape that we didn't need, and our trainer actually preferred that we get rid of it because it was extra weight on the way back. <laughs> uh, so um, on that team, we had uh, Mark Dodds, who was coaching the U of S women's team right now. We also had uh, Josh Howitson, who, uh, you know, set the national team for years and is playing over in Switzerland now still. Um, so we, we kind of gathered all the guys and said, okay, we're going to get Josh. We're going we're gonna to pin him down in this hotel room and tape him up with all this tape uh, and kind of mummify him with this tape other than, you know, leave his head free and be somewhat responsible about it. So we had this all planned, and then we, we gathered outside his door, and then we rushed in. And what Mark Dodds didn't know, that the actual real plan that Josh was in on, that we would actually tape Mark Dodds. Um, so we, we stormed Josh's room, we paused, and then everyone looked at Mark, and he was like, oh, crap, and pinned him down. We taped him up, um, head to toe, and we left his finger, like, exposed. <laughs> Because the next part of the plan was that we would put him in the elevator and send him to every floor, and he would have to push the button on the floor. And we were getting a good laugh out of that, and uh, we got pictures and stuff. Um, and then we were in, like, I don't know, floor seven. We were sending him up and down, but we didn't send him to the lobby. And then the last part of the plan was, like, okay, we'll send him to the lobby. People down there will see. They'll have a good laugh. Um, and he was very much against it, but we're like, hey, you're kicked up. You don't have a choice right now. Um, and some of our other athletes were like, I don't think this is a good idea. And the, the majority of us were like, ah, oh, it's going to be fine. And, and so we sent him uh, we sent him down to the lobby, and the security in the hotel lost their mind. Um, <laughs> they got really upset. There was all this commotion. Uh, we were waiting in the lobby when we sent him down. They blocked off the elevator. They took Mark into a separate room, and we were like, oh, no, what's happening? So they, it, it actually ended up being a whole big thing at the hotel where they took our, uh, they took our cameras away, the pictures we took, and even though I actually ended up getting us one of the pictures out, uh, so those guys that were warning us that was a good idea were actually right, like got, got in a bunch of trouble from from the hotel staff and the tournament security about it, but uh, that was, I guess, uh, somewhat of a funny story. That picture <laughs> surfaced later on on Facebook and on social media. Just can't give volleyball players free time in a hotel, I don't think. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Hopefully Dodds yeah, doesn't mind uh, that one getting out. That's hilarious. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. Hopefully this is a nice teaser that uh, anyone listening will attend the coaching symposium and, and learn some more and pick your brain, but also watch the squad. So that's the Can-Am Holiday Volleyball Showcase, December 28th to 31st in Toronto. Uh Sounds exciting. Excited to see you guys play. And then big second semester coming up for you guys in that tough Canada West. I believe with Winnipeg hosting, do you guys you get three bids outside of them no matter how they finish? Uh, with Manitoba hosting, no. Uh, Manitoba hosts and then Canada West gets two. Oh, okay. So it'll be a big playoff series to get down to who's awarded those two spots then. Yeah. So now if, if Manitoba's one of those – sorry, Canada West gets three and Manitoba's included in one of those – three so if Manitoba were in the top three then it would be the next the next two. Oh, okay and then um yeah for U Sports they combined uh the AUS and RSEQ are the same now right there's only one coming out of those? Uh those are combined but there's two births from that conference. There's three from the OUA and oh. then there's three from 
can west and then whoever so if we didn't know who hosted the rule would be whoever is hosting that's one of the births from that conference so in our case that's manitoba so they're one of our three gotcha yeah thank you for explaining yeah. that so and yeah. that's, that's tough because it changes every year and then people you know coaches lobby for a new format and yeah so it is tough to follow because it does change very frequently Nice, something to look forward to, and I think with uh, it being Garth's uh, last year, it'll be exciting to see what Manitoba can do, and obviously pay a little tribute to him and everything he's done. Oh yeah, he's the, he's, he's got a story coaching career for sure. Definitely. Well, thank you for. Oh, so we here. I think uh, if he was in the YouTube era, we'd talk about him more, but I don't think anyone really knows how good he was. Oh yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, when I hear stories from uh, Terry because he played with him, and he was uh, quite a phenomenal athlete. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think we've taken enough of your time. Like I said, you'll have to be a returning guest eventually, but uh, thank you for everything you shared and good luck the rest of the way. Thanks for having me, Josh. Really enjoyed it.